You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. Yankee Stadium, New York, New York. Saturday night, I walked off a building, breaking my back and heel. Tuesday, I was fitted for crutches and a steel torso brace at a place coincidentally called Yankee Bionics. I say coincidentally because Friday, I left for a previously scheduled road trip to watch the then-Cleveland Indians play at Yankee Stadium. I never mentioned to my friend, the person driving us to New York, that I had broken my back. In fact, I don't think we spoke at all during the week leading up to the trip. We merely assumed we would both be in the agreed-upon meeting place in time for the outing. My friend pulled into the driveway, and I exited my apartment in crutches and a full metal torso brace. What happened? she asked. Non-trivial roof miscalculation, I answered. But it looks worse than it is. What is it, she asked. A broken back, three places, and a shattered heel. Actually, she countered, that's exactly what it looks like. We started the drive, figuring on about a seven-hour drive to Manhattan. Like all Ohioans that had never left Cleveland, we did not account for traffic and assumed we would have no problems finding street parking in Manhattan. This was my first exposure to the difference in scale between big cities and small cities. People from small cities do not tolerate nor grasp the entropies of big city traffic. When you encounter traffic in a small city, you eventually come to the cause of it. Some accident or lane consolidation or disabled vehicle. You assume that you will see the reason for this traffic so much that if the delay is significant enough, you might angrily yell, Somebody better be dead up there. You get no such resolution in a big city. You reach no lane closure, nor the encouraging signs of dead people. It's causeless delay. Slowness stacked upon slowness. In many ways, Chicago, where I live now, has the worst traffic in America. Statistically, it ranks second to Boston. And certainly, people from L.A. and Houston claim to have more crowded highways. But what makes Chicago traffic so bad is that drivers never seem to expect it. Ask any Chicago driver how long the drive will take, and they answer, 20 minutes, my friend. They put no thought into traffic or distance. Reflexively, it's 20 minutes to everything. A house across town, Soldier Field, the fucking airport. Thus, Chicagoans drive with the anger and aggression of someone who left the house expecting to arrive on time. Chicago is 9 million drivers on the road at the same moment, each convinced if they could just get ahead of the one car in front of them, everything would be fine. 
I did not own a car in Chicago when I first moved, but I quickly understood how aggressive its drivers were one week in the mid-2000s when a Southwest flight slid off the runway at Midway Airport. The plane went through a concrete embankment before stopping on the road outside. Cicero Avenue, an important multi-lane road. I was new to the city and will always remember them interviewing the passengers on that plane, which went something like this. Oh my God. Oh my God. I've never been so scared in my life. Our plane goes off the runway. Mud is flying everywhere. We go through a goddamn wall and we are now out on the road and every car is passing us and honking at us. The reporter then started blithely asking follow-up questions about the plane, completely ignoring the fact that the interviewee had just described one of the most terrifying and hilarious things I've heard in my life. Chicago drivers witnessed a jet plane crash into the road before them and were, at best, unbothered and, at worst, mildly irritated. How aggressive are these people, I wondered, nay, feared, that they are honking and passing a functioning 737 that just broke through a wall like the Kool-Aid man with its engines on? I cannot imagine the conversations in those cars. Oh, now, what's this asshole trying to do? Plane breaks through the wall, engines deafeningly loud, blowing litter and debris everywhere. Are you serious, guy? The Chicago driver accelerates to claim the lane that a four-engine jet airplane is sliding into. The driver's wife screams, Honey, just stop! I got the right away! This moron doesn't even have his blinker on! He holds down the horn. I said we would be there in 20 minutes, and we will! I was expecting New York drivers to be frighteningly aggressive as well, but I found them to be mannerly, though I think it stemmed more from abject nihilism than kindness. They would create room for you to merge onto the highway. They maintained safe distances, outward signs of kindness. These were not drivers, like Cleveland or in Chicago, that were under the misapprehension they could reach their destination in 20 minutes. These were drivers that accepted What does having one more Pontiac in front of me mean if there are two million cars before us? The volume of traffic created a defeatedness that bordered upon kindness. This was one of the things I mentioned to friends in Ohio upon returning. How nice everyone was. Really? I always heard New Yorkers were assholes, my friends exclaimed. No, that's wrong, I answered. They are assholes to each other. They have a kind of code where they speak to each other with frightening violence, but treat tourists with business-like kindness, sort of like how feuding armies agree not to kill civilians. We spent the first night having a great time in Manhattan. The next day, we woke up and soon left for Yankee Stadium to see the Cleveland Indians play. As we were getting ready, someone pointed out that it was forecasted to be very hot. I said I had heard the same and asked for my bag. Someone grabbed my large, overstuffed duffel bag and nearly threw it into the other room. Jesus, they exclaimed. What's in that? It weighs nothing. Oh, just my stuff, I answered, unzipping it, when dozens of impossibly long white tube socks popped out like snakes from a gag jar. See, like everyone else, I had heard temperatures would be in the 90s that weekend. 
and my metal torso brace was brutal in the sun. It was difficult to weather 10 minutes in the heat in it, let alone a nine-inning baseball game. So I went to a big and tall store and bought three packs of their longest white tube socks. I took my shirt off and started tying the tube socks tightly around my belly. This is my summer cast, I explained. We got into the stadium and the usher noticed my crutches and large cast, and that it was 100 degrees and I was sweating like I had been poisoned. Buddy, you might want to think about the handicap section, the usher suggested. Uh, do I qualify? I asked. Well, you can't fucking walk. So, yeah, I'd say you qualify. He pointed to where our new seats would be and they were in a section of the stadium that we could never afford normally. We happily relocated to that section. Sean, these seats are amazing, someone gasped. I know, I concurred. They say that when I'm 50, I'm going to regret walking off a building. But I got to say, so far, there's been almost no downside. Which was true. Traveling with a big, painful injury is the best. People hold doors open for you, give up seats, help you carry beers back to the table. It restores your faith in America that most people are genuinely kind. On each interaction, the person helping me with the door or a seat or a bag would ask, what happened? Well, I'm a big Huey Lewis and the News fan, and uh, one thing kind of led to another, and I fell off a building. There would be a pause. Well, they absorbed all that. Then a confident agreement. Yeah, great band. The Cleveland Indians went up big in the second inning. And we were all cheering. And the Yankee fans around us were being really cool. Almost laughing about it. We took in more of the area around us and noticed that the women near us were uncommonly gorgeous. The entire section was full of bizarrely well-dressed, beautiful women. Our buddy from Cleveland had told us the previous night that everyone in New York City dresses better than back home. But that had seemed like hyperbole until that moment. We also began to notice that these women were exceptionally well-informed about the players, cheering for utility players that would not normally get this level of support. It was after a few more innings and beers that the penny dropped. We were seated among the players' wives. You are not aware of how psychopathic the average fan's cheering is until you sit next to someone with a human connection to one of these players. Standard cheers like, Fuck you, you redneck moron! Go back to Oklahoma and fuck a sheep. You know, all the usual stuff that us fans love to hear and say sound a tad excessive when you scream it next to that player's wife, the other loving half that is helping to raise a family with him. Suddenly, it seems like these traditions might not be the healthiest way to engage another human. We continued to root for the Indians, but the newfound knowledge of who our neighbors were caused us to be more conciliatory in our cheers. Plus... Everyone began to introduce themselves to one another, and it was in general a good time, despite the scorching heat. And perhaps due to the heat, or how much fun we were having, the cold beers began to go down even more quickly. And by the third inning, we were out of money. No big deal, I announced, and began to unfasten my cast. I fiddled with some of the pockets inside it and raised it to my mouth. What's he doing? Someone in our group asked. We snuck vodka into his cast, my buddy answered. It's 92 degrees. You are going to drink vodka that's been inside his cast all day long in 92 degrees? 
I passed the cast to my buddy and we thought about the question for a moment. Well, the human body is 98 degrees, I replied. Yeah, so technically, we're cooling ourselves down, my buddy added as he took a swig. Now, it turns out that when you drink vodka warm to about your body's temperature, its effects are doubled. Or at least, that's how I defend losing the next 10 hours of memories. My next conscious recollection jumps forward to me suddenly, or it sure seems sudden, inside a bar on the Lower East Side. It was late at night, and we were with a new group of people all unfamiliar to me. Drinking while you are within a blackout is the closest we Earthlings can get to being teleported from a spaceship. You open your eyes and you find yourself in a brand new locale, even though you could have sworn that just a second earlier, you were on what amounted to a different planet. More damning, my last memory before the time jump slash teleportation was taking back my cast, raising it to have another sip of vodka and assuring the people next to us, don't worry, we are the last people you need to worry about on this trip. Then I lost 10 hours. This is standard for me. My final words before a blackout are always the most wrongly optimistic statement I have said that week. It's never anything like, I'm worried I've been drinking too fast. Nope. It's always something ironically cheerful, like, I couldn't have a bad night in this city if I tried. Then I wake up in a cemetery with a separated shoulder. I think it's because our brains are highly thematic. They like a story with a climax and wish to end on the right note. I imagine the neurons within the brain complaining about rising levels of booze. We need to initiate blackout protocols. But there's an old, grizzled neuron in the front, an old veteran, who knows when to hold steady, yelling back, Not yet. It's around that point that you say something like, I don't think Long Island iced teas even affect me. And that's when the hoary old cerebral commander yells, Now! Shut it all down now! Your brain wants you to remember that hubris. It wants you to recall that last damning sentence. And it's equally as choosy about when it wakes you from a blackout. You never come out of an act of blackout in the middle of great sex. Or just after you've finished an amazing story with everyone around you laughing. It's always at a new bar in a totally different part of town. And you are settling a bill for 17 people you don't recognize. Again, the old weathered neuron in your brain sees you offering to pay your last week's salary and drinks for people you don't know. And announces to the rest of the brain... Okay, team, let's bring them out of the blackout to remember this. This is a keeper, for sure. Regaining sentience in an unfamiliar New York watering hole, I found myself not only buying a round of drinks, but paying in cash, which was worrisome because my last previous memory was drinking out of a cast, in front of Yankee wives, no less, precisely because I had no money on me. Yet now, I somehow had $400 in readies on me. As scary as it is to suddenly come to penniless, it is far more frightening to regain your wits and discover you now have more money on you. I would rather find human blood on me. Thanks for the beers, someone yelled after I settled the bill. My pleasure, I answered to whomever while still trying to assemble where I am and how I got there. Can I reach over you and grab my beer, I asked, to no one in particular and proceeded to do just that and took a long sip. This was the moment when New York got a lot less friendly. In less than a minute, I was thrown out of the bar and yelled at for vomiting. 
but I did not vomit. What happened was, the thing that I had reached over and grabbed was not my drink, but rather a candle. I was so drunk that I picked up and sipped from a lit candle. I don't know if you have ever reached a place where you were sufficiently smashed to mistake a warm, flaming illumination for your beer, but, well, let me satisfy your curiosity as to what happens when you do that. When you take a long, confident sip from a burning candle, you have two immediate problems. First is the hot wax scalding its way through your mouth, burning everything from the roof to the floor. And secondly, and shortly thereafter, as that wax reaches the back of your throat, much like lava meeting the ocean, it starts to cool and coagulate. Your new predicament is that you have a soft but growing ball of wax stuck in the back of your throat, very much creating the sensation that you are choking. So you start spitting out the wax so as to not asphyxiate. And it's an ugly, loud combination of spit and wax, and in general, you do not look well. And this was precisely the state I was in when the bar's bouncers grabbed me and escorted me outside. It took three bouncers, not because they thought I was dangerous, but because two were holding my crutches while the main big guy just hoisted me out. I should point out that I was still wearing my summer cast made entirely of cotton socks, which was why, as the big guy started to carry me, I heard him say, this guy must have some weird health problems. After all, I looked super fat, but felt like a big blanket when he picked me up. They deposited me outside with a reprimand. You're out of here. You just barfed in the bar. False, I countered. That was not vomit, sir. I've never vomited in a public house. When drunk, I have a tendency to talk like a bad Shakespearean actor in a doomed effort to sound more sober. What? They weren't buying it. That was a candle, I explained. I mistook a candle for my draft. I was spitting not vomit, sir, but wax. Hot wax. Wax hotter than Icarus's melted wings, my good men. They found it so funny that a guy as visibly injured as I was, with a torso that felt like an alpaca's coat, demanded to be allowed back into the bar because he drank a candle, as though that's the level of sobriety you want in your establishment. That they allowed it. They let me back into the bar. Again, New York is the nicest city in the world. We were kicked out five minutes later, when I mistook a stranger's red wine for my beer and tried to finish it. The next day, we woke up to find it even hotter. Nonetheless, we decided that before leaving the city, we would walk for what seemed like three miles to a makeshift memorial for John F. Kennedy Jr. He had died a few days earlier in a plane crash, and my friends wanted to pay their respects. We bought flowers and laid them down, and one of my friends opined, it really shows you how short life is, how it could be taken at any moment. One by one, the group agreed. Something along the lines of, yep, you said it. When it was my turn, I was so hot from walking on crutches in the heat while wearing a vest made out of cotton footwear, I merely exhaled warily. Honestly, I think I've learned that lesson. I did a sign of the cross and headed into the nearest bar, while the rest of them said longer goodbyes. Inside the bar, I ordered, your coldest drink, please. The bartender made me a chilled vodka martini and handed it to me. I started laughing. What's so funny, he asked. Something wrong with the drink? No, not at all, buddy, I explained. It's just that yesterday, I drank the most opposite version of this drink you can think of. <laughs>